0: Missio Church. Missio Church, strong partner of Renovation Church. By the way, kids, you're dismissed. I was supposed to say that. That was the first thing I was supposed to say. I already screwed that up. Um, I I mentioned I'm one of the pastors of Missio Church. Missio Church Renovation, we're uh, really strong, uh, close partners uh, in the gospel here in Syracuse. Uh, I have the privilege of sitting on the advisory team for this church. And uh, just a couple weeks ago, we had a meeting. And it was great to hear from Becker and Maisie and Jeremy and the others uh, just what the Lord's doing through this congregation, um, how He continues to um, mature and conform Christ's people in the image of His Son, how He continues to use you to be salt and light. And so I just simply wanted to say what a great encouragement and a source of strength that this congregation is to me in particular and uh, to the family of Missio Church as well. And it's a uh, really great to, uh, to be here this morning. Uh, we're uh, continuing uh, this series through the gospel according to Matthew, and our text this morning in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 of Matthew, that's my, Matthew five thirty-one through 32, and uh, I'm going to read these two verses and uh, I just follow along as, I, as we read from God's word. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we ask now that as we consider this very heavy topic that you would strengthen us with your word, that you would incline our hearts open our eyes, give us understanding. Please, Lord, satisfy us with your word and with your promises. Uh, We love you, Lord, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, as you could probably tell just from reading those two verses, that uh, we're talking this morning about marriage and divorce and remarriage, a very sensitive topic, uh, a very difficult topic, a very Confusing topic, in fact, so sensitive, difficult, and confusing that Mike Mazie scheduled a vacation for this weekend and asked a guest preacher <laughs> to preach on it. Um, so I was considering this passage, for whatever reason, I, I thought of this Saturday Night Live skit from a couple years ago. And it was around Thanksgiving time, and there's this family, this extended family, they're all gathered together for that very uh, famous Thursday afternoon meal. And as they're all uh, gathered together, the extended family, uh, this family just starts talking about all kinds of things that you just shouldn't talk about. At a Thanksgiving meal, I mean, they're talking about politics and who they're going to elect and all that stuff. And um, at this point, what happens is uh, everyone's at each other's throat and everyone's arguing and fighting. And then a little girl from the family, I think, turns on an iPod or phone or something. And all of a sudden, Adele's song, Hello, starts playing. Hello, it's me. And that song comes on and, and everyone just immediately stops arguing. They look one another in the eyes. And then they all bust out and singing this Adele song. All of a sudden, there's, there's harmony, and there's unity, and there's happiness. And then um, the, the song turns off unexpectedly, and everyone's jolted back to reality. And they start arguing again. And someone brings up an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend or something. They're at each other's throats again. Song kicks back on, and they're all singing in unison again. Hello from the other side. I mean, they're just belting it out. People are standing on the table. I mean, they're, they're singing the song, and it's once again... A very happy family, and I, I thought of that because I, I just thought it would be nice if at various points throughout uh, these 30 minutes, if I could just ask Paul Daly to come up and start playing Hello by Adele, and we can just be unified and have harmony as we uh, consider this, this very difficult, very difficult topic. Um, it's, it's a hot topic because uh, marriage, divorce, remarriage, it's, it's always in front of us. Um, there's not a month that goes by where we don't read about uh, a celebrity divorce or, as it's now called, a conscious uncoupling. Um, we know the statistics 40 to 50% of Americans' um, the marriages end up in divorce. Uh, it's the marriage, those divorce rates seem to be going down slightly among millennials, but most think that's because they're just not getting married, cohabitating, um, not interested in it, dealing with the pain that, that came with their own families. I mean, so that would say just about half of the people in this room um, have been affected in some form or fashion immediately um, by the difficulties that come with uh, divorce. and And it's a difficult topic because when we talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, we're talking about relational failure. And therefore, real relational hurt, real relational pain, real relational guilt. And there are very few instances where the sinned against party did nothing wrong, but in the vast majority of the cases, um, all of us will be conscious of, of guilt and that real hurt and that real pain and that real disappointment because we're dealing with relational breakdown. I mean, no one on their wedding day thinks that when they're taking their vows that they don't have every intention of trying to fulfill them and, and given the weightiness of the promise that comes with those wedding vows, the weight of the relational failure is all the more uh, significant and painful and difficult. And I want to be very clear right out of the gate that uh, each and every one of us have failed in some form or fashion relationally. Think of our marriages. There's not a husband in the room that could claim that he is the husband today that he wants to be or should be to his wife. There's not a wife in the room that would claim today that she is the wife that she wants to be or should be to her husband, and even if you're single, you are also deeply aware of your own real, very real, relational failures and disappointments throughout your life. So this morning, we speak of sinners, myself, chief among them. And we need to remember uh, the context of these two very weighty verses in Matthew five thirty-one through 32. The context of the Sermon on the Mount... And what Jesus is trying to accomplish here. He uh, introduces this section in Matthew 5.17. Where he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Then he says in Matthew 5.20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It's hard to have righteousness that exceeds that of Pharisees and scribes. I mean, they knew the law and they conformed to the law, at least outwardly. He's trying to uphold the standard of God's law here. And then he concludes this section, Matthew 5, 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's standard, perfection. That's what he's holding up here. So Jesus' aim um, is to look at the moral perfection, the moral standard of God's law. And as we consider that moral perfection, that moral standard, um, to not allow ourselves to be deceived even for a moment that we, in and of our own strength, by our own merit can reach that standard of moral perfection. The message of the Christian faith is not, here's the bar, do whatever you can to reach it, and if you don't, you don't stand a chance. That's not the message of the Christian faith, but but rather, um, we need to pursue God by way of a different path a different way, namely Jesus Christ, his life, work, sacrifice, and the righteousness that he has then transferred to us for all who call on the name of Christ. Uh, Several years ago, back when I was a college pastor at Summit Church down in southwest Florida, uh, we were doing this I think it was a fellowship night, hangout night. All the college students were there. I was there. And uh, there was a ping pong table at the, the place where we were, we were all hanging out. And um, I you know, I could only have so many awkward conversations with college students. And so I thought, I want to play a game of ping pong. And so I was looking around the room and seeing who wasn't preoccupied in a conversation or who wasn't uh, already engaged with something more important than ping pong. And uh, I was trying to figure out like, just someone that I could play That would be somewhat competitive, but that I could clearly beat. Like, that's what I was looking for. And my eyes land on this kid named Colin. I go over to Colin. Colin, you want to play ping pong? He was just kind of sitting there by himself, so I thought I was doing this good deed anyway. And um, he said, yeah, sure. So we go over to the ping pong table, pick up the paddles, and three minutes later, I lose 21 to nothing. I mean, I just get destroyed. Like, he would serve it and I would just whiff. Like, I couldn't even hit it. And then when I would serve it, he'd return it and I would whiff again. I mean, kid you not, over in three minutes. So I'm looking at him from the other end of the table, like, Colin, how did you get so good at ping pong? He said, Well, I played semi professionally in high school. <laughs> And um, in fact, I traveled to different countries, and I was this close to becoming a professional ping pong player. It's like, what in the world? So in that moment, I realized, like, number one, I obviously have no clear discernment, especially when it comes to choosing ping pong competitors, and so I will just never size anyone up on a first glance ever again. And secondly, I knew that if we were going to keep on playing, I needed to try a different path. A different way, a different approach, because I couldn't even get the paddle on the ball. So I asked Colin, hey Colin, would you mind uh, teaching me a few things? And so the rest of the night, he just started giving me lessons in ping pong especially. Like I'm still really bad, but I needed to try uh, a different way. I mean, here was the bar, Colin, semi-professional ping pong player. Here was me, and I needed to try a different path. That's the idea of what Jesus is getting at here. Here's the bar of God's Righteous, perfection, and he's saying we got to try a different way. Namely, through Jesus Christ. Now, that's the broader context then. And Jesus, throughout Matthew 5, is basically saying, well, you have heard that it was said, you know, some version of the law or their interpretation of the law. And then Jesus goes on to introduce the, the next part of it. But, but I say to you. And he begins to show them That there's a a different way, that there's a a needed way, a, a way that we see at the beginning in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual depravity, their own spiritual bankruptcy, and cry out to the Lord. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, those who humble themselves, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So it's in that context then that we see these two weighty verses. And the, the the main idea then we'll see is that in the eyes of God, God's intention for marriage is that marriage would be a lifelong union. God's intention for marriage, in the eyes of God, it's a a lifelong union. And we're going to look at four questions that are answered in these two verses. One, what does the Old Testament law uh, teach on um, divorce? Secondly, we're going to see what Jesus says about divorce. Thirdly, we're going to see what does the phrase accept on the grounds of sexual immorality mean? And then fourthly, what does Jesus say about remarriage? What does the Old Testament law say about divorce? What does Jesus say about divorce? What does accepting the ground of sexual morality mean? And what does Jesus say about remarriage? Okay, first of all, what does the Old Testament law say on divorce? Matthew five thirty one. It was also said, here's what was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, uh, Jesus is alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1 through 4. That's what he is um, alluding to an interpretation from that. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Let's, let's look at that together. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right, so these verses are dealing with a husband who... um, We'll talk more about that indecency in a moment. But he divorces her. And he gives her a certificate of divorce. That certificate of divorce then would make it a legal thing. And that would then allow her to go get remarried. And then this woman uh, remarries and it implies then that the first husband, he's obviously going to get remarried as well, so now he's remarried. And then um, this woman with her next husband, uh, he then gives her a certificate of divorce or he dies. This is saying that the first husband should not then go back, implied divorce his current spouse, to get back with the first wife. Or uh, even if he's not married, he shouldn't go back to the first wife. Now, why would that be in the Old Testament law? Well, um, We know in this day and age that uh, women, they would have to be married. That was the only way that they were going to have care and support and provision. And this is a law intended to protect, especially women, from being tossed about. And it's also a warning to men who are going to give their wife a certificate of divorce to not do that casually, but to think long and hard about it. Because if you do that... You're not getting back with her. Now there's this phrase um, right in verse 1 that says, If then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. Big debate in Jesus' day about what that indecency could mean. What was this indecency? In fact, Uh, Jesus is asked this question directly in Matthew 19, verse 3. So as you're going through verse by verse through the book of Matthew, this isn't the only time that you're going to deal with marriage, divorce, and remarriage. When you get to Matthew 19, you're going to see it again. And in verse 3, the, the Pharisees come up to Jesus, verse 3 of Matthew 19, and they ask him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife, and notice these next three words, for any cause. So that was a major interpretation of, at this time. Indecency could be, could be anything. Now, the, the Pharisees, I mean, these are the self-righteous ruling elite. They were the ones who determined who was in, who was out, who was righteous and who wasn't, who you should listen to and who you shouldn't listen to. And now they cared about moral purity, but as you heard me say earlier, and you know as going through the Sermon on the Mount, they thought they could reach that righteous standing in their own strength. It's hard to think of a more uh, smug, arrogant, ruling class than the Pharisees of this time. I mean, maybe the ruling elite or the intellectual elite of 21st century America, like, might come close. But this is a smug group here. And in Jesus' day, about that indecency, there's there's two main schools of thought. One would be more of a minority position, the other would be the majority position. The minority position was that indecency was reserved for um, like the most serious situations, like adultery. And in those cases, a certificate of divorce could be issued. Um, the, the, the larger practiced... Um, interpretation was the second one, and that is, it's basically complete no-fault divorce. Indecency could mean anything and everything. You don't like how your wife cooks, give her a certificate of divorce. You wanted that steak medium, she made it well done, well, kick her to the curb. And I didn't look at my wife, by the way, when I said that, because her cooking's fantastic. And and then, uh, uh, if you found someone that's more uh, attractive... Someone prettier than the person you're married to? Give her a certificate of divorce. Um, There's one well-known first century Jewish historian, Josephus, who basically said um, it's okay to divorce one's wife for any and every reason. In fact, he divorced his wife uh, three wives three times. Um, It's just complete, no-fault divorce. That's the context that Jesus is speaking to here. So if we're going to attempt to summarize What did the Old Testament law teach on divorce? The best we're going to get is that it assumes the existence of divorce. The best we're going to get is it's going to prescribe what to do after divorce, but it's not saying um, that it's good. It doesn't command it in certain situations. It uh, simply assumes that divorce exists. Second question then. So what does Jesus say about divorce? Back to Matthew 5 verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The point then, what he's saying kind of goes like this. If she is sexually immoral, she has sinned. If he is sexually immoral, he has sinned. If neither of you are sexually immoral, and you divorce your wife, you've sinned, because You make her commit adultery because in that context she would have had to inevitably remarry as that would have been her only means for financial care and support. Therefore, divorce in any and every circumstance involves sin. On the part of at least one party, but most likely Both parties to varying degrees. And so in the broader context what he's saying is that any culture where divorce is casual, where divorce is normalized, that culture cannot consider itself righteous based on God's standard because each and every divorce will involve sin. I mentioned Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, uh, Jesus in addressing marriage, divorce, and remarriage, rather than going to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, he goes to what you could describe as maybe a more suitable Old Testament passage. Uh, He goes to Genesis 1 and 2, and he grounds marriage, you know, the purpose of marriage. You've got to go back to the foundation. He grounds marriage in God's creative design. Uh, Genesis 1: 27 very familiar verse so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them now more can be said about it we don't have time but you see male and female he created them two genders representing the image of god genesis 2:24 and 25 another well known two verses therefore A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, when Jesus goes back to the creation account, Paul does this also in Ephesians 5, grounds marriage in God's creation. Marriage, therefore, is God's work. Marriage belongs to Him. He gets to define marriage. He gets to determine how it's entered into and enjoyed. You know, the day and age we live in, try to reduce marriage to a piece of paper. Say it's an agreement between two people. It's an expression of love. It's a symbolic enshrinement of our feelings. Biblically speaking, no. Marriage is the work of God. It's defined by the presence of of his creative hand, and we don't just get to reduce it only to feelings and emotions and convenience, but he does a miracle of taking two and making them one. I mentioned Ephesians 5. I mean, Paul says that marriage is actually a, you could call it an acted-out parable, a living metaphor of how God loves his people, how Christ loves the church. I mean, in Genesis 2.24, um, you see the, the nature of marriage, how it's a public commitment. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. It's a very public thing. It's a permanent commitment. Hold fast to his wife. Cling to something. Don't let it go. It's a physical, intimate commitment. And they shall become one flesh. They were were naked and no shame. You know that public commitment, it's a picture, Paul says in Ephesians 5, of God's commitment to the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. This this permanent commitment till death do us part, Um, the exclusive bond. That's what marriage is, it's a metaphor, it's a picture of the exclusive bond that, that God wants to have with his people. The the intimate commitment. This is a picture of the intimacy we are to have with God, those of us who are made in His image. So then the, the purpose of marriage, going back to the foundation, a little insight from Paul's epistle, we see that um, it is a public, permanent, intimate picture of God's love that He has for all of His people. God loves us publicly. God loves us permanently. God loves us intimately. Marriage is intended to be a picture of the gospel. Now, uh, I just officiated a wedding like nine days ago on Valentine's Day. How romantic is that? And um, you just imagine, you know, we're up at the front... And uh, the groom's there, and I have everyone stand up, and the bride's walking down the aisle, you know. And, and we've been in the crowd before where every, all eyes should be on the bride, but everyone's trying to catch a peek at the groom to see how he's reacting. You know, is he, is he crying? Is he showing any emotion? Is he just stone cold? Like, what kind of man is he? You know, and so you're just going back and forth, back and forth. Imagine that scene comes up there, and in this particular wedding, I mean, they... They read their own vows. Like they had these cool little moleskin tiny notebooks that they busted out, and I'm shoving the mic in their face, and they're, they're expressing their love um, as they're reading these things. And just imagine, you know, you know it's going to be this romantic thing. You kind of even feel a bit uncomfortable, like you're interrupting something with how romantic it is. And uh, But imagine he, he the groom, if he, he opened those vows, and you're expecting something romantic, and he said, I want to marry you today because... I didn't have any other options. You were the only one that said yes, and I figured might as well go forward with this because everyone's already here, and we have paid for the reception. I mean, people would just start throwing tomatoes. Like, I don't even know where people get tomatoes, but they would find them, and they would throw them at him in that moment. Why? Well, the, the ceremony is intended to convey publicly the permanent commitment of intimacy. And in this wedding ceremony, I borrowed this from another pastor, but I had said um, you know, to them and, and to the audience, like, imagine if everyone comes back 50 years from now. So that would be 2070 on Valentine's Day. And we gather everyone together who was at that wedding ceremony, which would be a miracle if a lot of those people even lived that long to make it. But we're celebrating this couple's golden wedding anniversary. And um, the hope would be that as these friends and family members look back over the 50 years of marriage, they should be able to say, I mean, this was a Christian marriage, that they just got a small picture by looking at their marriage of what it was like to be loved by God. Even when her looks began to fade, he loved her. Do you remember when he had that very difficult situation at work. She loved him. In spite of that very terrible tragedy that they endured, they stuck together. Even though life threw those, uh, them these significant curveballs with illnesses and heartache and hardship, they remained committed to one another. William Taylor says that the breakdown of marriage in a culture, a culture where um, Divorce is, is viewed as casual and it's, it's normalized. That um, it, it's a serious sin and offense at at least four levels. It offends God. It damages society. It breaches the most significant promise that you've ever made to another individual. And it damages them and compromises your integrity. So this then, in part, explains what Jesus is saying when he says, But I say to you, Everyone that divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Once again, the logic goes like this. If a man divorces a woman who is sexually immoral, she's already an adulteress, sin is involved. When a man divorces a woman because he is sexually immoral, he is already an adulterer, sin is involved. When a man or woman divorce... There's no sexual morality, and then as one or another remarries, sin is involved. Every divorce will only and always come as a result in one form or another of human sin. And in a culture, particularly with the religious leaders at this time, who thought that they were doing all right and they can meet that standard, Jesus is saying, let's look at God's purity. Let's look at God's design. Let's take a look at what God intended for marriage as you Pharisees throw that certificate of divorce out there flippantly and casually and normally. that God's standard on marriage still stands. And then we'll address the last two questions together. Um, they um, they're, they're answered in part at the end of verse 32. The, those being, uh, what does except on the ground of sexual morality" mean, and what does Jesus say about remarriage? Those are the last two questions. Verse 32, it says, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality. That word, sexual morality, comes from a Greek word, "porneia." One word in the Greek, and that word, "porneia," should ring a bell in your heads. It it means sexual morality. It's a good translation. It's an overarching term that includes all kinds of things that would make us blush: bestiality, homosexuality, fornication, adultery, and in this context, though not exclusively, it most likely implies adultery, that is having sexual relations with someone that is not your spouse. Now, there are uh, godly men and women, godly pastors, theologians throughout church history that would hold to differing interpretations and applications from the phrase, except on the ground of sexual morality. Some would say that... um, that phrase it implies to the betrothal period, the engagement period, and if it happens during that period, then it 's okay to not go through with the marriage essentially, and you'd need something like a divorce certificate um, after that that initial commitment had been made. Now others would say and hold to the conviction that a spouse that is someone who's already married, not betrothed, but married has a legitimate option of divorce when According to this text, sexual immorality is committed and remarriage in those cases is permitted, meaning the remarriage itself would not be, um, it wouldn't be adultery. Um, In such cases, those who hold to this view would say that the sinned against partner is not necessarily bound into the marriage, and some say that if that sinned against partner, again, goes on to get married, that that remarriage um, or the new marriage wouldn't be adulterous. Now, that, that second view, um, I think it'd be a fair summary to say that that's probably the, um, the, the majority evangelical view related to this passage. But again, I want to be clear, not everyone in, in Christianity um, that we would say are brothers and sisters in the Lord would um, agree with that interpretation. And those who do say that, no, when there's sexual morality that is committed, that that, um, that allows for at least a legitimate reason for a divorce, um, the question then comes up, well, in the eyes of those who hold that view, why would adultery be that exception? Why would adultery be considered part of that exception clause? Um, and they would say that, um, that adultery is the one sin that tears apart that one flesh union. In the Old Testament, adultery, the punishment for adultery was was death. It's a serious sin. And sex in a marriage would be that that final bonding. It's the physical, mental, emotional glue of a marriage. It's the physical manifestation of that uh, spiritual and emotional and mental union that you have with your Spouse. Some have actually connected uh, the wedding ceremony and the sexual union with the ordinances that we see in, in baptism and the Lord's Supper, where baptism is a, a covenant initiation. It's a one-time thing. Think marriage ceremony. Initiating that covenant is a one-time thing, where the Lord's Supper is this thing that we do repeatedly, remembering. It's called It's covenant renewal. Uh, similarly, that sexual union, is, it's a renewal. It's a physical manifestation of the co- covenant you've made, and you're renewing that as that act is participated in And at the heart of marriage is a sexual union, so sexual promiscuity would be, those who hold to that view, that this is a legitimate um, exception clause, would be the one exception that the Old Testament would allow for and that Jesus allows for, for a potential remarriage follow-up question would be then, is adultery the only exception? Well, um, we don't have time to get into all the nuances. I'm I'm attempting to teach Matthew 5, 31 and 32, while still addressing some important aspects of marriage and divorce and remarriage. But 1 Corinthians 7 introduces another um, idea that not everyone would would hold to um, about uh, abandonment or willful desertion. Uh, Some would say that part of that abandonment and willful desertion, that abuse would fall um, under that as well, and of course, again, there's differing thoughts and interpretations on the First Corinthians seven passage. Another question: Does the sin of adultery or any other grave sin then uh, necessitate divorce? Key in that question is necessitate divorce, and certainly not would be the clear answer. Um, you know, I know just as a pastor, I've been involved in a, I think of three just in the last 18 months where. Um, sexual morality was committed by one spouse and um, they wanted to reconcile and there was a lot of pain and a lot of hurt and a lot of heartache. There was forgiveness and there was the church, those, uh, you know, a few families that that wrapped around them, cared for them, counseling, um, but we saw um, forgiveness and uh, commitment and love and affection. And so there's nothing in these passages that say that um, that divorce has to happen if you hold to that exception clause view. Now, uh, I want to wrap up then with just addressing four different groups of people, which I think will cover everyone in the room. And I don't pretend to know. I'm I'm a guest here today, and I'm teaching on this heavy topic. Like, I don't know where everyone is. But there's four groups of people that I think will cover everyone. One, I want to address like... Kids slash, like, single adults. Uh, Those who aren't married would be a better way to say it. Those who aren't married. um, uh, Singles. I want to address people who are married. I want to address those who have been divorced. And I want to address those who have been divorced and remarried. First group. Trying to apply some of these things from these two verses and and some of the other principles we've talked about. Uh, Kids, single adults. um, I think... This, these verses in Genesis 1 and 2 and what we've talked about, it um, challenges the many messages that we hear in our culture about marriage. It confronts head-on the picture of marriage that is painted by our culture. You know, instead of viewing marriage as a... Um, you know, the way Disney, every Disney movie presents it. I see someone, they make me feel good, and I feel butterflies, and I'm going to be with them until those butterflies go away, then I'll figure something else out. But we should primarily view marriage as God's creation, that we should um, view it as part of God's creative design, that we should view it as a metaphor, an acted-out parable of, of the public, permanent, and intimate love that God has for his people. For those who are married, um, we know that marriage isn't easy. There's a lot of potholes, difficulties. You're going to be, if you haven't already been disappointed by your spouse, you'll feel let down. You may even feel disrespected and betrayed. But hear this. Your marriage is not a mistake that you made. It was part of the grand design of our sovereign creator. And as you encounter troubles, as you experience hurt, don't be looking to hit the eject button so quickly. And for those of us who are Christians and we remember the purpose of marriage, know this. To neglect our spouses is sin. Our marriages are more important than our jobs, our marriages are more important than our careers. Our marriages are more important than our individual self-fulfillment. Our marriages are more important than our standard of living. Our marriages are more important than our pride. Now I do have to say this when talking about this topic. If you are in physical danger, if you're being physically threatened, you or your children, um, this teaching, you know, don't um, this teaching doesn't say that you need to remain a punching bag. You need to immediately call the police and let the leaders in your church know this is not okay, this is not acceptable on any occasion for any reason. It is a marring and a mockery of God's design. To those of you who have gone through a divorce, um, I can't pretend to know all the pain and difficulty and hardship that you've endured. I am, my parents were divorced. I experienced it as a child. Um, And I'm sorry deeply that you have experienced the effects of sin in this way. I would encourage you to consider Christ's teaching on marriage. If your ex has not gotten remarried, I would encourage you to prayerfully evaluate with the scriptures and your church leaders. Whether or not reconciliation is possible, reconciliation is not always possible. But seriously, weigh Christ's teaching and church, renovation church. We, as the church, need to gather around men, women, families to love them, care for them, support them, in some ways provide for them, that are going through this very real, painful, and difficult thing as they trust the Lord for what's happening in their life. And uh, please look at me when I say this too. If you have been divorced, you're not damaged goods. You're not spiritually unredeemable. You're not less than in the body of Christ. All of those who have trusted in Christ are above reproach now in Christ and are declared blameless and are welcomed by the body of Christ. There are no second-class Christians based on this particular action or any other past action. The church, we don't find our identity in our past sin, but in our present standing in Christ. If you have trusted in Christ, you are a brother and a sister in the Lord. And finally, uh, for those who have been divorced and been remarried, uh, this teaching does not mean that you should divorce your current spouse. The application for you from this passage is that you love And honor your spouse, the person you're married to, right now. Confess, repent of your sins from the past, yes, and then go and sin no more. And allow your marriage to be a picture of the extravagant love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Allow your marriage to glorify the Lord despite any past sin and seek to honor and glorify Him. So the aim of this teaching, just these two verses, again, very serious and difficult topic. Um, The the major intention in the context, it's to dispel self-righteousness. It's to dispel self-confidence and pride. We've all sinned, and we're to mourn that sin. We're to repent of that sin. And the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel, that Brandon's already said this morning that we've sung about, is that in Christ Jesus, for all who call on the name of Christ, that sin has been removed from us. That is not our primary identity, and that is not the thing that defines us. But in Christ, we get God, and we get Christ's perfect righteousness transferred to us, so that we can, with all the other saints, plead the blood of Christ, plead the blood of Christ, and plead the blood of Christ in order to receive His compassion, His mercy, His grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together In Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. And uh, the clarification and the conviction and the hope that it gives us. And I pray that you would use uh, this truth to continue to mold and shape us. Father, we come here as those people who have all sinned, are in need of your grace. We love you, and it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. As a continuation of our worship, um, we're going to now participate in the Lord's Supper. Um, Paul teaches about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'd like to read verses 23 through 26. the Lord's death, until He comes. this table isn't for those who are morally pure. This is for those who are sinners in need of God's grace. Uh, This table is a a reminder of what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross, the bread representing His body, the cup representing His shed blood, as well as a picture of the banquet feast that we see in Revelation where we will have um, unmitigated, pure fellowship with the Lord in a glorified state. And so for those of you who have trusted in Christ and have identified with Christ and his people through baptism, I invite you to come, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and let's remember all that Christ has accomplished. Please, come.